But anyway, let's get started on today's last of the 40 Days with Jesus series. In 2012, there was a poll that was carried out nationally in this country. The poll was to find the best famous last words. Whose epitaph was the best? Who had written the greatest final moments of their life? And the country voted, I'm not sure how they did it, but they voted and over two-thirds of the people in the UK said that the comedian Spike Milligan was the winner with his immortal words, I told you I was ill. <laughs> he definitely got the last laugh, didn't he? Prime Minister Winston Churchill, he came in sixth place. He wrote something a bit more sensible. He said, I am ready to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. That was wonderful. But there's many famous last words. Things like, don't worry, I've done this a thousand times. Or, what does this button do? Or, does it bite? Or here's my uh, good one. Hey, everyone. Watch this. My favorite, yes, darling, you do look large in that dress. Don't worry, it's not loaded. Or, what's the worst that can happen? Or, I'll finish with this one. Famous last words, I left a million pounds in the... Oh, come on, that's a good one, isn't it? That's a good one keep you thinking. We're going to talk about some of the last words of Jesus, some of the last things he said to his disciples, his final preparation for when he was going to leave them on this earth. And we're going to look, start off uh, Acts chapter 1. Uh, the words will appear on the screen and just talking about the ascension of Jesus Christ going back up to heaven. Uh, Acts chapter 1 starts like this. Dear Theophilus, in the first volume of this book, I wrote on everything that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he said goodbye to the apostles. This is written by a man called Luke. Luke wrote two books in the Bible. The first one he named after himself, as you do, Luke. And then the Acts of the Apostles is his second book. It's his second book. And he's writing to a man called Theophilus, who is his benefactor, the guy who paid him to keep a track of Jesus, to write everything down that Jesus did. And that's what we did in the first volume of the book. The second volume is all about what the followers of Jesus did, the Acts of the Apostles. And so here he is writing to his benefactor. And he said um, uh, here, the ones he had chosen of the Holy Spirit, the Apostles, and was taken up to heaven. Verse 2, after his death, he presents himself alive to them in many different settings over a period of 40 days. In face-to-face meetings, he talked to them about things concerning the kingdom of God. As they met and ate meals together, he told them that they were on no account to leave Jerusalem, but must, must wait for what the Father promised, the promise you heard from me. John baptized in water, but you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit and soon. When they were together for the last time, they asked, Master, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Is this the time? He told them, you don't get to know the time. Timing is the Father's business. What you'll get is the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you'll be able to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all over Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the world. World, sorry. These were his last words, his famous last words. As they watched, he was taken up and disappeared in a cloud. They stood there, staring into the empty sky. Suddenly, two men appeared in white robes. They said, you Galileans, why do you just stand here looking up 
at an empty sky. This very Jesus who was taken up from among you to heaven will come as certainly and mysteriously as he left. Let's pray for a moment, shall we? Lord, I thank you for this story of Jesus, this man who lived on this earth, who was fully God and fully man, who was, who was committed to death, even death on a cross, who was resurrected and walked this earth for 40 more days, encountering so many people until he ascended to be with you at your right hand. Help us, we pray, to learn something new of who you are this morning through these words. I wonder if you knew what your last words would be in a conversation with somebody, what you would say. It doesn't have to be the end of your life. It might just be the last time you see them for some time. Or if someone's about to go on to a significant activity or a change of life circumstances, what would the last thing you say to them be? Maybe you've got people in your household who are in the middle of exams. It's exam season. What do you say to people as they go into their exam? You probably should have revised more is maybe not the best line you could think of. But what's the last thing you say to someone? What's, what's the words you're going to leave ringing in someone's ears? Or maybe you're a teacher and you have a group of children in a year six or a, you know, in GCSE year or about to finish college going off to university or work. What's the last thing you might say to them? Young people you've been investing your time into for a, a school year. What are you going to say to them as their final words? What if you have a teenager about to head off to university after summer? What's your last words? What's your final piece of wisdom that you might give to them? What have you got a friend or a family member about to start a new job? What would you say to them? I read a book uh, once which told this story, a very sad story, of a, a Jewish lady who was in Auschwitz during the Second World War. And she tells a story that while she was on the way to the concentration camp, um, she was separated from her parents. She couldn't find her parents, and she was, she was worried about what was going on, as you can imagine. She was 15 years old, and she was there with her brother, who was only eight. And she didn't know what to do, and she looked down, she saw her brother had lost one of his shoes. And so without really thinking it all through, she just got angry with her brother. She told him off. And she said, what do you think you're doing? You've lost one of your shoes. Can't you keep all your stuff together? Can't you organize yourself? And she called him some names. And, and then suddenly at that moment, she said, they were separated. And her brother was put on one train and she was put on another. And they never saw each other again. And she says, having come out of the camp at the end of the war, she said she's now made a vow that she will never say anything to anybody that couldn't be her last words, her final words. I thought that was a very poignant thought. Are we prepared to say things to people, make sure that what our last things we say to somebody is something that speaks well of them, speaks highly of them, rather than leaving people thinking, what do you think of me? Is that the best you can do? and hurtful words that can ring in our ears for time to come. Jesus, in his final days on earth, spoke to his disciples, his final preparations, in this final of our 40 Days with Jesus series. What did he say? Because for the last 40 days, in fact, it's been a slightly longer than that, we've been looking at these encounters with Jesus Christ. We've been looking at the people who met with him. We've been looking at the people who have seen Jesus themselves after he was resurrected. You know, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest comeback in history. It is much greater, dare I say, 
than such a temporary, largely unimportant event as Leicester City winning the Premiership. Against all odds, 5,000 to 1, but in August, we'll all start again with zero points. And off we go again. Every football fan hopeful this year would be the year. In fact, more so, because if Leicester did it last year, we can do it this year, surely. But Jesus was the man who, in his comeback, changed history. He changed people's lives. You know, he met with Mary on Easter Sunday morning. He met with the disciples, the guys on the Emmaus Road, Thomas, Peter, to name but a few. He's changed those lives and all throughout history, he's been changing lives. And Jesus Christ is still changing lives today. Jesus Christ is still in the business of transforming people's lives. This event of the ascension was recorded. Luke 24, it says this, while he was blessing them. I love that. While he was blessing them, he was taken up into heaven. His last activity was to bless his followers Acts 1, as we just read, he was taken up before their very eyes until a cloud hid him from their sight. It's an important historical event. Often the Christian calendar remembers Christmas when Jesus was born. It remembers Easter when Jesus died and was resurrected. And often, sometimes, maybe more traditional church remember today, the Pentecost Sunday, the birth of the church, Acts chapter 2. But we rarely remember ascension. But arguably, it was a very, very important day. Everything changed on Ascension Day. It's a hugely significant moment. It's the moment almost of Jesus' coronation. It's where he goes from living on earth as a man to being elevated to heaven at the right hand, as we're going to hear, of God the Father. Everything changed on that day. And I believe the Ascension has important implications for you and for me today. And I want to show you three benefits Three really important benefits that we can get, you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, if we understand what the ascension did for each one of us. So, you know, it's like sharing in the spoils of his victory. We get to participate. This is not someone else's, this is ours. So number one, we have access to the Father. We have access like never before to the Father. Something changed as a result of Easter that was completed at the ascension. Something shifted. Jesus said these words to Mary Magdalene, which are really quite uh, special. Listen to this. He said this. Go, he said to Mary, go to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. It's in John 20. Do you see what he said there? He said, I'm not going back to my father. I'm going back to my father And this father's your father as well. We now have the same dad. Okay, I need to do better at my preaching here because everyone's going, yeah, I I suppose all right. Yeah, son of God, being brother with him and God, creator, universe, he's my dad. That's amazing. Jesus' death doesn't just kind of go, you've got to pass to heaven. He says you get to become access to the Father. You get to go call him Dad. You get to walk, as we're going to hear, boldly in and going, you're my Father. This is not about groveling and permission and a headmaster. This is about Father. This is a Dad. This is the one who loves you and is for you. You see, before the Easter and the resurrection, Jesus would often talk about his Father. I'm going to go away. I'm going to pray to my Father. But after the resurrection, he offers us a different accessibility to the Father. Do you know what? You can come with me. You can be, you can see him as your father. My father and your father are the same thing. 
Something's changed. Something's different. Nothing will ever be the same again. I remember a, a moment for me personally where I fully understood what it meant to have God as my father. I love my dad to bits. He's 82 years old. When we were brought up, he was a very strict dad. I tell my children this story, they don't believe me, but my dad used to have bamboo canes behind the door in his study. And they weren't for show. Well, apart from my sister, that's a whole other conversation because that was just for show. But with my brothers, there was five of us and one sister, it was a regular occurrence of meeting with the cane. Often my dad would get home from work and my mum would explain our terrible activities and he would sort of get the flexible cane out. That sounds terrible. And I know he loved me and he was trying to work out his way of doing things. And it took me a while to understand what it means for God to be my father and how much he loved me. But I remember the moment, it was a significant moment for me. I was in a, a worship band at my local church and we would meet every single Monday uh, to spend time practicing our instruments and playing and getting prepared ready for the Sunday. But before we even picked up our instruments to play them, we would spend time worshipping God first. And it's really important that our worship team don't just learn to play their instruments. It's important they do know how to play them. But it's important they are worshippers first. And we'd always spend a time on Monday nights and we would just get together as a small worship team and we would just sing songs and we'd get on our knees and we'd pray and we'd worship. And I remember a moment where suddenly God broke in. We never even got to playing our instruments because there was this incredible moment where I was just on my knees, on my face in front of God, and suddenly this understanding that God was my Father. He wasn't just some sort of logical, mathematical, I can work out this faith thing on a piece of paper. This was a relationship. This was an emotional connection. This was, this was somebody who loved and cared for me. Everything changed when I understood his love for me. And we can know God as our Father, or we can really choose to fully embrace that concept. You see, Jesus removed the barrier between us and God. The truth is, before Jesus died and was resurrected, we weren't good enough to call him Father. We were not able to be in his presence. But Jesus in Hebrews 1 says, after he provided purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father in the majesty in heaven. And I love this kind of bit that Jesus comes and goes, I'm sitting down. Why? Why do you sit down? You've done your job. You shouldn't really sit down. You know, it's a bad idea. Oh, I've sat down now. It's a bad thing. Jesus sat down to go, job's done, people. I've done what I need to do. And sometimes we're busy stressing around, but Jesus is up at the right hand of God the Father. He sat down and go, I've done the work. I've done the work. I've given you access to the Father. You see, this is the huge difference between Christianity and other religions. That's why I struggle when it gets dumped into kind of world religions. Because for every other religion, you've got to work your way to any kind of future. But Jesus sat down and said, I've done the deal. Stop stressing and just accept me. Just say yes to following me. Stop trying to be a better person. Stop trying to fix everything. You can't fix everything. You will never be good enough. But if you say yes to me, you can come and join me sitting at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. He can be your father because he is my father. That's what Jesus has done. That's good news. Thank you. <laughs> we're getting there, we're warming up. Hebrews 7, he says this, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. 
You see, Jesus isn't just up in heaven, sat down and going, job done, let's have a cup of tea. Jesus is up there in heaven, and the Bible tells us he's interceding on our behalf. He is praying for us. He is for us. He sees what you're going through right now, right today. He says, I am with you. I am for you. I'm speaking your behalf to the Father. I'm standing in the gap. The difference between what you are and what you need to be, I fill that space. That's what Jesus is offering. He is actively engaged, interceding on our behalf. He's not passive. He's not like, okay, feet up, I've done my piece. He is continuing in his interceding for us at the right hand of God the Father. It's like a bridge between us and God. That's what he offers. And then in Hebrews 10, the writer, they think is Paul, writes these words as well. I think we've got them on the screen. And so, dear brothers and sisters... We can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. Can I just say, that phrase, boldly enter. When I walk into my home, I open the door, I walk straight in. I just just walk in. It's really like, it's, it's no big deal. I just walk into my house. I don't kind of go timidly into my own home. I don't, am, I, am I okay to come in? But if I go to someone else's house that I've never been to before, I knock. They open the door. I then walk in. I think, shoes on, shoes off. What do I do? What are the rules? You understand? Where do I sit? Is that someone's special chair I'm about to sit in? Is that going to be an awkward conversation? But in my home, I walk in. I know where I sit. I know whether the shoes go on or off. I get that because I can boldly enter because it's my home. It's where I live. We can enter the holy place boldly. We'll get a walk in and go, God, it's great to see you. Hi, Dad. We don't come on our knees going, I am so pathetic. I am so useless. You probably don't love me anymore today, God. And he's like, what are you doing? You're my son. You're my daughter. I'm your dad. Get up off your knees. Let's do family. That's what it means. Enter the holy place boldly. Because of Jesus' death, breaking that curtain in the temple, that that physical uh, symbol there, but also a literal thing that Jesus has opened up the space for us to access the holy place, the holy of holies. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God, not tiptoe around the outside. Let's go right up front and say, God, I'm here with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. It's a different picture, isn't it? And I'm not, I'm not worthy. I'll just, I'll just stand back. Who does that kind of thing? When you go to like a big posh event, you're not sure what, what the seating arrangements are or who's meant to do what. You just kind of, I'll just hang around until someone tells me where, where I should be. I've been to those kind of, those sort of civic things and stuff. I don't know if you've ever been to that kind of stuff. And I feel a bit like I haven't got, I need a chain around my neck to fit in. And I'm never sure of the rules. And I'm always nervous. But this is our home, the holy of holies. We have access. We have confidence approaching our Father God. We can access God. Number two, we have a new identity in the Son. We have a new identity in Jesus Christ himself. We are different. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, doing some leadership sessions with a, a leadership team, a senior leadership team from a local school. They'd asked me to come in and do a morning's training with them about leadership and, and the value of the team that they were part of. And I, I do this quite often, and I, I'll always ask the same first question. And I said to them, I said, who are you? 
And the classic groupthink issue is that whatever the first person answers, everybody copies the same answer. It's classic, isn't it? So I said to the group, who are you? And the first person answered the question, and they said they told me their name and their job title. And they went around the whole room, and each person, seven or eight people, all said their name and their job title. I said, that's great, that's lovely, it's good to know your names. But it doesn't answer my question. Who are you? And the sad thing is, in our society, when people say, who are you? We say, well, my name is, and I do this. And that is our identity. Our identity gets wrapped up in the stuff we do nine to five, Monday to Friday. Your job and what you do or the function you have is not who you are. It's just something you participate in for a portion of your life. It is not the person that you are. And we're so often defined. And I don't know why we do this thing in our society. We almost do a grading system of, oh, right, okay, so you're that job. That means you're in this pecking order. Oh, you don't have a job. Okay, right, we've created that. Really? This almost like weird judgmental thing that goes on. We're going to stop doing that and go, who are you? Because every single person is a child of God who said yes to following him has immense and unending value. Somebody once said to me, everybody either has greatness in them or they're pre-greatness. I thought that was great. What an amazing thought. When we sit with people and you have a conversation, try and discover the greatness in somebody because everybody has it. Some you have to dig out for a bit longer, but it's there in each one of us. Absolutely convinced of it. And I've had to work hard sometimes sitting in some meetings going, I know there's greatness here, but I'm struggling, God. Help me find that diamond. Help me find the bit about this person that's magic I can pull out of them. And so I want us to be people that discover identity in Jesus Christ. You see, the most important thing that we need to know is because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are sons and daughters of the Father God. Our identity is in him and through him. We don't just relate to Jesus like an earthly miracle worker or some historical character. We relate to Jesus as a brother, that as, as one of our peers, that he is part of our family and we are part of his. Really? Am I on the same level as Jesus Christ? Yes, if you have said, yes, I want to follow Jesus and be like him as much as I can, then yes, you are. God sees us the same as he sees his son Jesus. Why? Because he sees us through his son Jesus. He doesn't look at you by yourself. He looks at you through the lens of Jesus Christ. That's why he looks at us. He sees us robed in righteous robes. He sees us there as perfect, not because we are perfect, but because the lens, the covering is Jesus Christ. He looks through his son, Jesus. He goes, wow, you guys look amazing. And we go, no, no, we don't look that good. He goes, well, to me, from this angle, looking through my son, Jesus, you all look perfect. That's amazing, isn't it? Paul writes about this in Ephesians to the, the church in Ephesus. And uh, this one writer, Paul, says these things. He says this amazing prayer. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. What Paul is saying, in a bit of a longer passage, is that we have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that you carry the same power that conquered the grave. You're like, well, yeah, well, I know that in my head, but I don't always see it on a Monday morning. But it's true. That's what Paul was saying. He said, let's pause. I can think the power that raised Jesus is the same power you carry within you. 
But Paul goes even further. He carries on this verse and he says this, And seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this age and the age to come. Jesus also has all authority. Not just power, but authority. And there is no other authority that can rival Jesus Christ. And nowadays we can see in the paper, everything's a bit political, isn't it, at the moment? You know, we've got all kinds of things with London mayors and, you know, Donald Trumps and all kinds of stuff going on. And we can all talk about that, but there's no power. However great people think certain political offices might be, and that those that hold those offices may think they're important, but they have no authority compared to the authority of Jesus Christ. And we carry the same power and the same authority as Jesus Christ does. That's why we need to understand our identity. Our identity is not, I am a postman. Our identity is, I am a son of Jesus Christ that happens to deliver mail to people on occasions. Do you understand? You know, I am a son and daughter of Jesus Christ. The fact I help people in the medical services, I'm in a hospital, that is not my identity. That's just something I do to, to bless people with the identity of being a son and daughter of Jesus Christ. That I get to make a difference in my workplace because of who I am, not because of the job that I have. And Paul then finishes up this, this prayer and said, God raised us up with Christ and seats us with him in the heavenly realms. He didn't just say, well, Jesus, you ascend and be in heaven at my right hand. He goes, you're going to be there as well. That's a mystery because we're still here, but there'll be a time where we'll be on a par with Jesus, seated with him, and he will welcome us. He won't look at you, really? You think you're getting in here? Because you messed up a whole bunch of times. He won't. He'll look at us through that lens of Jesus Christ and say, you are my child. This new identity should dramatically affect the way we view our life. Colossians 3 says this, another great verse. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights, this is great, set your sights on the realities of heaven. How many people set their sights on the realities of what they can afford? Or the realities of what they've experienced? Or the realities of what they think they're good enough to achieve? Set your sights on the realities of heaven. Suddenly the bar went sky high, literally. Where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you die to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. I'm reading some great bits of the Bible out today. I mean, come on, that's amazing. We get to share in the deal here. God, gets the, God does his work. Jesus has, has done his job. He sits down and we get to share in the spoils of victory. You go, wow, do I deserve that? No, you don't. No, we don't deserve this stuff. But through what Jesus did, we can walk in to his, his holy of holies. We've asked the Father, identity with Jesus Christ. And lastly and thirdly, we have a new intimacy with the Holy Spirit. We connect with the Holy Spirit like never before. Last week, it was great to have Steve Lee with us speaking uh, at Freedom Church, talking about his work in France. I've known Steve for some, uh, almost 20 years. I can't do my maths all of a sudden. Uh, 17 years I've known Steve for. I first met Steve in 1989. And in 1989, I was 15 years old, 
and I was working at Spring Harvest, a big Christian event. And I was on a, a children's team looking after children. We had a thousand eight to elevens. And I was working with someone who would have heard of a man called Ishmael and the Glory Company. And Ishmael and the Glory Company had a thousand of these children here. And I thought it would be fun to help out as a teenager. And at 15, I was on the yellow team. Oh, yes, I'd made it to the great heights of being on the yellow team. And the yellow team leader was none other than Steve Lee himself. Steve was in charge of the yellow team. And before each time we had our children come to our, our groups, we would get together and we'd pray. And we'd pray in a group and the red, the blue, and the yellow teams would all uh, get together. And there were about 25 on the team. And we'd gather together and we'd pray for the day ahead, for the event that was coming up. And I remember on this one occasion, we're all just praying in a way I've never experienced before. Because everyone was just sort of praying and speaking out. And it was just like royal bedlam. It was amazing. And just in the middle of all this, and I was feeling a bit lost. And Steve said, there's somebody here who hasn't received the power of the Holy Spirit and be able to speak in tongues. And I went, oh, no, that's me. That awkward kind of, yeah, I'm, the, I'm that guy. So I don't know whether he spotted me not joining in or whatever, but I just went, yeah, that's me. I, I would love to receive prayer. The thing that Steve didn't know is for the previous two years, I had been desperately wanting to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Every opportunity, every visiting speaker, because we think they're special visiting speakers, don't we? Every visiting speaker at my church, I would go to them and say, could you pray for me? I want to receive the gift of speaking in tongues. I want to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And every single opportunity, nothing seemed to happen. And I was a bit disappointed. Two years later, I'm on the children's team at Spring Harvest, and we've got a thousand young people about to come bursting in the door, and these guys all clamping hands on me and praying for me to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It was, it was crazy. I'm like, what is going on? But I'll just go, whatever. And they all just sort of laid on their hands. They started speaking in different languages. And then I didn't know what was going on. But suddenly, I was speaking in a different language. There was this moment where suddenly everything dropped. And I had this incredible connection with the Holy Spirit like I never had before. Now, we can argue about the theology of when the Holy Spirit turns up in your life. Is it the day you say yes to following Jesus, the moment you get baptized? Or is it there's some sort of fresh outpouring of, you know, kind of physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit? I don't really care. Something happens. You can argue me theological all you like. I know there was a moment in 1989 that I stood there. One moment I couldn't speak in tongues, the next I could. And I just went walking around the site that whole night just speaking in tongues, going, this is, this is amazing. And I had this connection with God like I never had before. My, my walk with Jesus Christ went to a whole new level. My prayer life took over. It was an incredible season of my life where everything shifted. And I just remember it, and I will always look at that time as a very significant time in my life. And it's something that has kept me going as a Christian when times are difficult to have that intimacy with the Holy Spirit. You see, one of the huge benefits of that ascension of Jesus Christ was it paved the way for today, Pentecost Sunday. Ten days after the ascension, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. John 16, Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Huh? But Jesus, you, do, you, do like, you provide all the food. I mean, you know, when we're hungry, you just kind of make stuff happen. When someone's hurting, needs healing, you do the healing. You know, Jesus said, I'm going to go away. The counselor won't come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. I've got to go to let the other guy come because he's a bit better than I am because he can be in more places than one at a time. 
But can you imagine thinking, well, no, surely it'd be great if Jesus was here because, you know, he'd do a much better preaching job than I would do. He, he, we could get him preaching on the internet. That'd be really cool on YouTube. We could have like a whole series of, of Jesus sermons there. That'd be amazing. And Jesus, could, I mean, there'd be no hospitals because Jesus would just kind of deliver everyone from any illnesses. It'd be amazing. Wouldn't it be incredible? But Jesus didn't want that. He wanted us to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we would be his voice, his hands, his feet on this earth. How? Through the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus was limited on earth. He couldn't physically be in two places at once. Even after he was uh, resurrected Jesus Christ, he was still only in one place at one time. He was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, the road to Emmaus, the room in Jerusalem, beside the Sea of Galilee, on a mountain, but he was never in those places at the same time. He was always at different times. He could never do that. He was alone in his power. He tried empowering the disciples. It didn't always work that well. They said, Jesus, we had a go at casting out demons on this guy here. It's not really working. Help is quite a common conversation. Can you imagine poor Jesus going, oh, not again. I mean, when will they get this into their heads, how this thing works? Okay, bring them here. I'll fix it. He had to go to empower the, the disciples, to say to them, this is, this is your time now. This is your time. Jesus uh, ascended so that his Holy Spirit could be released. And he said this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor, or some versions say a comforter, encourager, to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, you know him, he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. We're never alone. However lonely you may have ever felt, if you know Jesus Christ and you have said yes to following him, his Holy Spirit lives with you. And you can know that closeness, that intimacy, that connection. We are never alone. And because this Holy Spirit, because he is one with the Father and Jesus the Son, it's possible to say, Jesus can say, I will come and be with you. He means as the Holy Spirit. No matter where you are, because of the ascension, there's going to be this coming of the power of the Holy Spirit to release to each one of us. Christ is permanently with us, always with us. We're in between times. We are in between the ascension of Jesus Christ to heaven and waiting for the second coming of Jesus' return. But in that time, he is with us through his Holy Spirit.